Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. I'm excited to welcome Nikki Thompson, CEO of Amphista Therapeutics. Thanks for joining us today, Nikki. Great to be here, Rahul. Wonderful. So Nikki, to kick us off, would love to understand the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Yes, I actually started and I think my career by a pretty non-traditional route, actually. I started off in industry. First 20 years of my career was at what is now GSK. So I started actually without a degree and GSK very kindly funded my degree part-time. It was of the time of Glaxo and the time of the blockbuster drugs. Uh, So a great time to really start in big pharma. And I really had the opportunity to work across multiple therapeutic areas. Actually, at that time, because many large pharma had quite a lot when it came to funding, we were able to move into research innovative areas. So I had exposure to a lot of breaking and cutting edge science, even in that early part of my career. And that led to eventually GSK allowing me after my degree to go off and do a PhD. And that was at the Laboratory for Molecular Cell Biology at UCL. And it was focused on protein regulation, an area that I've come back to now with Amphista. But the protein regulation I was focused on was the regulated secretory pathway in membrane trafficking and the synergy between neuronal and also immune cells and how they release their various mediators. So exciting area of science and fantastic to be able to get away and do that research while I actually employed my company. It's a route actually that was much more common 20 or 30 years ago and sadly less common now actually. On coming back to GSK, I had a group that spanned actually both neurology and also immune cell function. It was in the genome era when groups were looking at uh, functions of novel genes that were coming out of that activity at the time. So an exciting time to be in research. And my group really spanning both of those therapy areas. And by that time, Glaxo had turned into GW we were able to work in multiple therapeutic areas simultaneously and understand the functions of new novel genes in diseases such as Alzheimer's, such as asthma. So a great time to be involved in that. With the GSK merger, actually, I had the opportunity to move into a therapy area. And I decided actually the area for me was respiratory. And by the time I got to 20 years, actually, at GSK, I was allergic mechanisms head. And and that was a time when I was very much focused on both novel targets for respiratory. There was a need to find, there's always a need, I think, in pharma to find novel targets, but also to understand the system from very early target identification through to validation. And actually, what are the model systems to test that in? And ultimately, what are the experimental medicine systems to work in as well? So really exciting, broad span that I was allowed to work in at that time. So very, very fortunate. Having said that, after 20 years, and actually, I think it was my long service award, my 20-year long service award that I got at GSK, I took a step back and thought, well, actually, I think I'd like to really experience something different. And I had been the last few years, because of this search for novelty within the portfolio, I'd started to reach out and collaborate with the biotech ecosystem 
as a source of that novelty. And that was the first time when I really started to understand the synergies between biotech, what pharma does well, what biotech does well. And with that 20 years at GSK, I was approached by a group that were spinning out of the HPA, which in the UK is important down, which I think is known to many because of what's been happening over recent years, obviously with COVID. And they were spinning out a novel biofarm platform, a Botox platform, actually, and they were focused in the respiratory area. So this was a group that was focused in an area of science that I absolutely loved because that was the area that my PhD was in. And respiratory was my disease area that I've been working in for many years. So it felt like the right step to make to move into biotech and they were looking for a head of drug discovery. That was my first experience after 20 years in pharma or biotech as a drug discovery head. And I like to think of it as the best and worst of times in some ways, because biotech, I think I found out very, very quickly is a complete roller coaster ride many times. And you have to, I think, decide to embrace that or it isn't for you. For us, it was a roller coaster ride, but a roller coaster ride that ended with a good news story. That group was acquired by Ipsen in the end. But between that acquisition and my joining and that spin out, we had to close the lead program almost immediately as, as, as I joined, actually and think about how we develop a new portfolio. So I learned a lot about the investor community when they've put a Series A in and things aren't going as expected within just a few months. I learned a lot about management teams and how they come together in times of difficulty and about thinking about how you leverage a novel platform to gain value when things don't quite work out as you expect. And I think that's a common theme with many new technologies. You have to really think about how you learn from your failures, how you really think about positioning to gain value for a platform and gain trust. Investor trust is absolutely critical. And luckily for us, we were able to do that. We were able to move forward, generate a portfolio. And ultimately, as I say, a great good news story. That group is still actually as as Ipsen's Innovation Centre based in Oxford today, quite a few years after that acquisition. And that can be a common theme for platforms as well. But what I also learned during that time is I loved biotech but wanted to be able to contribute more, just not as a scientist only. And with that in mind, actually, just at that time, I was approached by GSK again and had the opportunity to join the external drug discovery group known as the SEED at the time at GSK. And that was a group that was put together of experts that were put together to enable GSK to move into disruptive areas, be that platforms or modalities, and do that by engagement with biotech. So that was a fantastic time. I had a, a role that was a hybrid business development science role. So really exciting. I got to learn a lot about how a big pharma thinks about embracing innovation, which can be challenging for large pharma. Innovation can mean many things to different groups and I think can mean something quite different in large pharma to the biotech space. But embracing that innovation and validating that innovation and then leveraging it into a large pharma. So a great learning curve, a great opportunity and really cemented a theme that I think runs through my career. And that is how groups can work together synergistically to become more than they are as single entities. I then had the opportunity to move to business development. Again, a great learning curve for me. But just as I was thinking, well, actually, now's the time to move back into biotech. I had a bit of a curveball and that was I was approached by Roche and they were thinking about setting up an external drug discovery group. And I had the opportunity to work with uh, Luke Santarelli and John Reed there at the time before John moved across to Sanofi. And what I loved about that opportunity was it was an opportunity to use everything I'd learned both in biotech, pharma and in the externalization space. 
I'd been working for quite a few years in externalization that was off strategy, disruption, to move groups to new areas. What was music to my ears, actually, with Roche is it was on strategy. And I think what I learned is it's much easier to leverage innovation when it's strategically aligned to start off with. So it was an opportunity to work with all of the therapy area heads to create an external portfolio, take a bit more risk, but create an external portfolio for Roche across all the therapy areas. So, you know, that was an amazing time working with business development, working across the Roche organization, but to really drive value through innovation but strategically aligned innovation. So a great time. Ultimately, though, I did want to go back to biotech. I had spent a few years at Roche commuting to Basel, which is always a bit of a challenge. And and quite a lot of my team is in New York. So you can imagine that sort of travel gets um, a little bit old quite quickly, actually. Not a world we're in now, I don't think, but then a huge amount of travel. But fundamentally, I, I wanted to come back to biotech. So came back with a UK focus. And over the past few years, I've, I've had roles that were either working alongside CEOs on their strategy, business development and financing, corporate growth, or spinning out biotechs out of universities, of which Amphistra is one, but one that I did just before that. And I wanted to mention it because I think the point I want to make is that innovation is an amazing area to work in, but sometimes in innovation in biotech, you have to get your timing right. And that was a learning for me as I spun out a broad spectrum respiratory antiviral company out of the University of Warwick. And that was Virian. And we spun that out. We were working with DARPA, the Pandemic Preparedness Force there a few years ago. But actually, I think the community, we had funding from a very well-respected investor, but actually we were two years prior to the pandemic and positioning something that could be very effective in a pandemic as that opportunity and as that asset was two years before a pandemic in the infectious disease space, which commercially isn't known as the most viable space. But a space I think is worthy of a huge amount of more innovation and technology and investment, actually. But if you don't get your timing right, no matter how innovative and exciting something is, it can be quite challenging to progress something. And actually got the closure papers for that company during the pandemic. Now, I think it's a good news story. I think something great has happened to that asset in the interim. But I think a learning for me during that period is innovation, no matter how great it is, can sometimes miss the moment. And something that I very much was aware of as I looked at the Amphistra opportunity, which had the right moment and had all of the things that I'd learned about what makes an early stage biotech, a spin-out biotech successful. And I guess that brings me to where I am today with Amphistra. Wonderful. Thank you, Nikki, for sharing that rich and, and diverse background. I'm curious of a couple of things. You know, when you left pharma and went into biotech versus where you are now, I'm curious what's changed in your thinking about how you approach running a biotech the first time you did so versus now. And this can be perhaps a learning moment for some of those first time entrepreneurs or folks that are thinking about making that jump into biotech that perhaps is not obvious to them. Yeah. The first time I jumped into biotech, I mean, a number of things to bear in mind. It was my first experience of that environment from 20 years in a pharma organization. And I absolutely loved my time through all the iterations that Glaxo, GW, GSK went through. But it's a very different environment. It's a very structured environment. It's an environment where you have everything around you that you may need to progress programs, technology. It's a very well-funded environment where it's a different business model fundamentally. Moving into biotech for the first time, I think what really struck me was that 
you have nowhere to hide. Not that I'm implying people are hiding in, in pharma, but it's a very exposed atmosphere where actually you have to rely on the ecosystem that is there in pharma, but you have to create actually your own ecosystem in biotech. You have to, I think, embrace that environment because it is a very, very different environment. And I think you, you make a decision to embrace that and go with it, or you decide at that point it isn't for you. Now, the first time I think I moved into that environment, I think for the first few months, I actually found it quite a confusing environment, actually. And then I think you just reach a realization, I either go for it and I jump in with everything I have and you go forward and you will make mistakes but you have to go forward and actually embrace those mistakes because many of them are learning opportunities. And then it's about relationship building and trust. Now that's true across whether it's a big organization or a small one. But I think in, in a small organization like a biotech, those relationships are just so critical as you build a, a leadership team. And also that relationship, you're very, very close to your investors. And that relationship is something that you don't experience in large pharma. It's a, it's a different sort of system. But one, I think, in biotech that's immensely freeing if you can embrace it. In fact, many people, when I moved to Syntaxin, said to me, you're going to have a huge culture shock. And that is absolutely true. I did have a huge culture shock after 20 years in pharma. But actually, the biggest culture shock I had after a few years in biotech was going back to big pharma. And that is because I'd been in a much more self-driven environment where, to some extent, you are able to make decisions more quickly more nimbly. Big Pharma, because it's a different beast, you have to walk in step with many people. And because of that, it's a more structured environment. It has to be to some degree. It's actually, I think, why Big Pharma often look out to biotech. And it's one of the reasons that the external drug discovery group, the seed at GSK I was working with, were actually a group put together of disruptors within that organization that understood disruption and that could embrace that from biotech as well. So that was my first experience. I think all of those learnings together, I knew what I was getting into as I moved into biotech that next time round. I had made the learnings that I wanted to make intentionally, and you absorb all of the learnings through the mistakes you make all the way along your career, and absorb them, embrace them, and learn from them. Some of them will hit you hard, but you've got to kind of put them in a little box, think about what you've learned, and move on. Yeah, wonderful advice, Nikki. I'm curious, you know, you talked about external innovation. I'm curious, given your experience across both biotech and big pharma now, how have the interaction points between those two ecosystems of biotech and pharma changed over, let's say, the last 10 years that you've observed? First of all, I'd say there were just so many more of them now. I think that I think volume has changed immensely. I think how both biotech and pharma work together. And the actual deal constructs, I think, have become much more flexible. In the days, the seed at GSK, I think that was a group that, for example, pioneered the option-based deal structure at the time. And it was a group that put some equity in. It was a group that put some upfront in and, and various milestones, business milestones along the way, and sought to prove platforms by ultimately clinical proof of concept. But actually, even in the time when I moved from GSK to Roche, the types of deal structures that you could work in, the early stage interactions that you can do versus ones that are in the clinic versus ones that span the entire space. And I think pharma has got 
more nuanced and more strategic about what it wants to achieve, both in terms of strategy and in terms of what it wants to do with its portfolio, but also how it wants to work in different modalities as well and test new modalities before going in with both feet. So I think actually pharma has learned a lot about what it wants to achieve with those collaborations. And I think biotech has learned a lot around how also it can utilize the skills of pharma and bring the innovation that exists in biotech to be more successful by accessing those skills. And so I actually think the groups have grown closer together, less, I think, suspicious is maybe the wrong word, but slightly less nervous of each other. I think they're more comfortable. And I also think there are more people like me that have actually flipped from pharma to biotech and are viewing it more of an ecosystem and have that experience. So I think there are more people with experience of that. The space has changed. People have got more sophisticated in how they engage with each other to be successful. Wonderful. And thank you for that easy segue into platform technologies. Before we get into the important work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Amphista, would love if you could educate us on target protein degradation as a treatment modality and what are the opportunities and challenges that come along with that? So targeted protein degradation, there are many new modalities, but targeted protein degradation is a modality that's essentially a small molecule modality to start off with. And it's an approach that really fundamentally engages a protein that causes disease via a small molecule approach. Generally, the first generation of the small molecule approaches for targeted protein degradations are known as bifunctional molecules. And that means that they have one end that engages the targets that you would like to degrade or dispose of, usually a disease-causing protein. And the other end of the molecule is part of the molecule that engages the machinery in the cell that basically takes the target protein that you want to degrade, that you want to remove, and it targets it for destruction and destroys it essentially within the cell. So what you're essentially doing is you're taking a protein, usually a disease-causing protein or implicated in disease, and you are chemically linking it to the cell's degradation machinery, therefore removing it. And that's quite different from other small molecule approaches that traditionally have engaged a target protein involved in disease to quite often inhibit its function, but but sometimes also to activate it depending on how it's involved in the disease. So this is quite different. It's removing that protein completely from the system. And that means actually that you can not only affect a response that you would maybe want to do with an inhibitor, but you can have a more complete response. And actually, you can remove proteins where actually inhibition is very difficult. And therefore, often that's termed as targets that are less drug-like, undruggable targets, because that traditional approach of inhibiting or activating isn't going to work. You need to remove it to have its beneficial effect in the body. So put simply, a small molecule approach that is completely different because it's removing the target that you want to remove to affect your therapeutic benefit. And as you think about the overall landscape around TPD, what are you really excited about? And and also for our audience over the next, let's say, two decades or so, where do you hope the applications of TPD evolve over time? What I'm really excited about is fundamentally, I think, targeted protein degradation meets an enormous unmet need. Firstly, it's a space that I first got involved in, actually, not as targeted protein degradation, but if you take a step back at what targeted protein degradation is trying to do, and if you think back over the last 10 or 15 or 20 years, actually, you could already see the unmet need 
for removing disease-causing proteins through approaches through RNAi or oligonucleotides that essentially downregulate disease-causing proteins or can remove them eventually by inhibiting that translation machinery. So we already knew there was a huge unmet need for that. But there are challenges with those types of modalities. Can you get them to all of the cells you need to get them to, to target as many diseases as possible? And actually, even if you get them there and you can develop a molecule that can ultimately be a drug, cost of goods can be prohibitive. So delivery and cost of goods, so how expensive fundamentally your drug is at the end of this process, and also fundamentally how you might deliver that drug because of the drug-like properties of those early modalities. Now, they are immensely successful but they have limitations. And so what targeted protein degradation is, is essentially something that looks like a pill at the end of the day and has all of the advantages of something that fundamentally can be a pill that you can take. You can take it and you can access wherever you need access, potentially to effect in whatever disease you want to target. Now, that is actually coming back to Amphista is the vision of Amphista. What we want to do at Amphista as a targeted protein degradation company is open up that therapeutic potential of the space. Now, this is a space that over the last five to 10 years has moved quite rapidly through to the clinic with those first approaches, which are generally known as protax, which are these bifunctional molecules. And they've moved pretty rapidly. They are generally focused in the oncology space. So what really excites me about actually what Amphista is doing is that that space has already shown to be very successful. Many of those first-generation approaches are in the clinic, are starting to show that actually, as with any new modality, safety can be a concern, but they're starting to really show that actually can move forward in development with these approaches. And they're starting to show efficacy in the clinic, but they are quite focused in the main, not entirely, but in the main in oncology. What excites me about Amphista's approach, and we have a novel approach to targeted protein degradation, is that by engaging with different parts of the targeted protein degradation machinery, you're able to have a much broader effect. First generation approaches engage parts of the machinery that have quite a variable expression profile, aren't expressed in all cells and tissues and aren't expressed to the same level in all cells and tissues. And that means that even if you can dose with your pill to the body, you may not, even if you get to whatever cell and tissue you need to get to to be effective, because the machinery isn't there that you're engaging with, and that's true of some first-generation approaches, even if you get there, you can't be effective. With Amphista, what excites me about what we're able to do is because we are engaging parts of the machinery that are broadly expressed, that means that we can be effective in a much broader range of cells and tissues. Actually, even within patient groups where, again, the machinery that first-generation approaches engage most often that's known as an E3 ligase known as cerebron. And we know that cerebron is quite variable, as I say, across cells and tissues, but also in tumors, for example, in different patients. So what the amphistus approach can do, because we are engaging broadly and highly expressed components of the machinery and also essential components of that machinery, means we've got a number of advantages that actually mean that we can move out into other areas and embrace the full therapeutic potential of targeted protein degradation. That's very important if this amazing new modality is to completely fulfill its potential. So I think what I'm saying in short is this is already looking to be a very, very successful new modality, but actually there's so much more you can do with that modality. I'm of the belief 
on two fronts that this modality for small molecules can be as big as, for example, the antibody space when that exploded. And I also think when we think about the future of innovation in the modality space, that small molecule approaches, I think, are becoming a smaller segment with the emergence of new approaches, cell therapies, gene therapy, RNAi, oligos, we can go on. But actually, the small molecule approach is seeming to be getting smaller. I think what targeted protein degradation is, is that resurgence of the small molecule approach. And we'll show how it can be not only as successful as it already has been in inhibitors, agonists, all of the normal sort of small molecule approaches that we're all used to. But I think this is opening up a whole new era of small molecule research that I think over the next 10, 20, 30 years will really, really sit as the leading approach of small molecule research. And and as I say, I think it has the potential to be so much bigger. And I think it's already showing itself to be potentially very successful. Yeah, wonderful background, Nikki. And so now from an R&D perspective, where's Amphista now and what can we look forward to in the coming years? So our journey as a spin out out of the University of Dundee in Alessio's lab, we started with a hypothesis that actually this is a successful space and we can do something very different. And we showed very early on that we had something very, very novel in the bifunctional degrader space. And we had critical advantages that we demonstrated actually during the Series A funding when we spun out of the University of Dundee. And those advantages are that broader reach into a much broader range of cell and tissues that can open up a much broader range of disease areas. We have fantastic drug-like properties, and that's really important if you want to be effective across a range of indications as well, particularly show that you can routinely obtain oral dosing, something that is still challenging for the field, I would say, particularly, you know, in the first generation space, but obviously achievable, but still challenging. And also the ability with those drug-like properties to access the CNS. In the oncology space, one of the key advantages we have is that because you cannot delete or remove the parts of the machinery that we use to degrade our disease-causing proteins, that means when it comes to the emergence of resistance, we've got key advantages in that there's a much lower potential for emergence of resistance. And that's acquired resistance, but actually you see that in the innate resistance. We think we have an advantage there. And we also have, because of the novelty of the chemistry and the technology, we have advantages when it comes to intellectual property and a very strong intellectual property platform. So that meant we had a very successful Series B. That meant that we were able to really start to build our portfolio. Oncology first, actually because of the advantages we see within oncology. But we also want to move out into other therapeutic areas, such as, for example, areas where accessing the CNS is so important for disease. And we think we have the technology to do that. So we are developing our oncology portfolio. We want to move out into other areas to really show that this is the technology that we believe it can be and is. And over the last few months, we signed two collaborations. We're absolutely thrilled to sign two collaborations with Merck KGA and also with BMS. And for us, that was fantastic because even though we already had corporate strategics in the Series B, we had a huge amount of interest from large pharma and the sorts of advantages that we're seeing are the sorts of advantages that they believe, I I think, they want to see in that next generation approach. I think it's clear that they've embraced the field already, but we see it as a great validation of our approach and our technology. And the ability to deliver across therapy areas is something fundamental in a technology. And through collaboration, we can reach other therapeutic areas. With Merck, we can also move into immunology, for example. 
that means a technology unlike a single asset portfolio through collaboration can reach more therapy areas. And ultimately, that means that a technology is able through collaboration, as well as our internal portfolio, to develop medicines across therapy areas fundamentally to patients. And we can do more than we could do on our own. And that comes back to the synergies between biotech and pharma for us. It allows us to work with groups that have clear expertise in areas that maybe we wouldn't necessarily move into. And equally, from a pharma perspective, they can access that cutting edge technology in a space that they know they're already committed to or strategically want to commit to in the future. So really synergistic interaction, but an interaction I think is important to remember in this space, which is why we're all so excited to be innovating in that space, that fundamentally comes back to developing a medicine. And being able to develop medicines across the board is something that really excites me about Amphistis technology. Yeah, so it certainly sounds like a, a very exciting time with some external validation. And I wanted to go back to a point that you mentioned earlier, which was that timing has to be right for innovation in our space. And I'm curious if you have any tips or perhaps a mental model around how you assess whether timing is right for a particular innovation or treatment modality. All I can give you is how I think that probably the most useful piece for this is not, not only timing, but maybe how I decided Amphista was the opportunity for me. And for me, it had all of the ingredients that I had learnt over the years, quite often through mistakes, if I'm honest, but all of the ingredients that I'd learned over the years that if I'm really going to put and invest myself, you know, investors invest fundamentally funds. But as an innovator, you invest yourself at the end of the day, you put everything into it. And what Amphista had was, firstly, targeted protein degradation was even four, five years ago, moving very quickly. It hadn't reached the clinic yet, but to my mind, had already shown itself to be a really exciting emerging new modality that was in a, it was already pretty hot, I think, as, as we think about that. So it kind of ticked that box. It came out of a leading academic lab, Alessio Chile's lab. I mean, Alessio is one of the pioneers of targeted protein degradation. So it had a great academic pedigree. Also, it had something that was very novel in a very hot area or a very fast moving new modality. So it was novel and it had an investor that was committed and committed from the beginning. Advent Life Sciences came into Amphista when it was actually a hypothesis and they knew that they wanted to move or invest in something novel in that space. So they were committed from the outset and it had an experienced investment group behind it. So for me, it had all of those ingredients. It was the right time. It was the right time for that technology. It was starting to emerge. But actually, if you've got something that you think can really open up a space which I think Amphista, even in those early days, looked to have. Now we spent the next, what I would say is I, we spent the next maybe one, one year to 18 months really understanding where we're differentiated because being novel in a hot space isn't always enough either. So what are you bringing? What problems are you solving as well? So timing, yes, but are you actually solving something that someone actually cares about or is going to move, not just incrementally, but transform what a modality, what a space can do. I think if you look at all of those pieces, that explains actually why the timing was right, because there was so much that TPD could do. So yeah, but look across, I think, when you're looking at how to invest yourself as an innovator, I'm sure it's it's not dissimilar to what investors are looking at at those early stages. Yeah, timing is everything. 
and in, in a space that I think is going to be so transformative. And we could see that, I think, even just a few years ago. And on that theme of learnings, would love to, you know, given all of your experiences across, again, biotech and pharma and all that you've learned along the way, curious, what's one piece of advice that you wish you could provide your younger self? If I was to go back in time, I think I would advise myself, and maybe this is this is the theme that comes through, is to embrace things that push you, challenge you, and don't be afraid of failure, because actually the biggest learnings, the things that I think I've taken with me over the years of my career, have many of them have been born out of some of the failures that I've had as well. So don't fear it, embrace it, and challenge yourself, because there is nothing like challenging yourself to provide you with that satisfaction that, that you've grown, but also you fundamentally contributed something. You've moved, you've moved innovation along, you've moved technology along. So don't be afraid of that. Embrace it. Understand the risk that you're taking. You always have to measure that up, but embrace it. Go for it fundamentally. Wonderful. Well, on that note, Nikki, it was a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for sharing a bit about your background and the exciting work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Amphista. Wishing you continued success and and look forward to having you back on in the future. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050pod. Again, that's Biotech2050pod. Until next time.